Does your confidence tend to dip when you're looking for a new job? Do interviews trigger self-doubt? If so, you are far from alone. Making a career change can activate our imposter syndrome and leave us feeling anxious and insecure. This week, I talked with Gina Riley, a career coach who specializes in interview preparation with a particular emphasis on how we tell our career stories. She and I explore many of the challenges that we face before, during, and after the interview process and how to best navigate the experience. Thank you so much as always for listening. Welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Files. My name is Kim Menninger, and as an executive coach and former high-tech leader, my personal mission is to help professionals overcome imposter syndrome so that you can advance your career with confidence. Each week, I interview a new guest who brings a powerful perspective to this conversation, including personal stories, best practices, and new insights. The more we talk about this issue, the more we destigmatize imposter syndrome, recognize that we're not alone, and empower ourselves to access the tools and resources that can help us and those around us. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing with others you think would benefit from this conversation. Welcome, Gina. It is such a pleasure to meet you, and I'm excited to have this conversation with you here. Before we jump in, I'd love to invite you to introduce yourself. Ah, yes, I'm Gina Riley. Um, I am the founder of Gina Riley Consulting. I primarily coach leaders and executives who are in career transition, and I work with people for a long time, generally six months or more. And I really get to know and understand, you know, some of those challenges and the and the self doubt that creeps in you know, at pretty much any level, um, but particularly for those that I, I talk to regularly, that doubt that creeps in and really prohibits us from getting that career movement that we deserve. And I think it might be surprising to some to find out that people at that level actually experience self-doubt because a lot of times we look around and we think everybody else is so much more confident. They have it all figured out, right? But it's 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 often surprising to learn that very senior level people still, and maybe even sometimes more so, struggle with self-doubt. I think a lot of leaders feel like they need to have a certain um, set of armor that they're wearing um, and hold themselves in a certain way. It takes a very special leader who earns a place where they're very respected and at the same time can show vulnerability. I've seen that as well in leaders. Um, It takes practice. To get there, and it takes you know a lot of executive presence to really lock people in with you and have them trust you, so you, they can be with you on a journey of being your authentic self. Absolutely, and I want to go even more into what we're talking about here. But before we do, I want to learn a little bit more about you. How did you get into this work? What were you doing before? Yeah, so um, my career has been in HR, human resources. I started off really doing staffing. And recruiting. I worked for Intel for a decade. Um, after getting a master's degree, I became um, an HR business partner and was like the partner to one of our VPs of one of the groups, and then moved into training and development, which was my passion, creating training programs and training people. I took 15 years off and was a stay-at-home mom for two boys who are now launched and in college. A few years back, I um, got my toe back in the water by working for um One of my friends who actually we met at Intel, she has an executive search firm. So I've done some executive search for her. I primarily do interview skills training in corporate for her company. That's Talents Group Executive Search. And then um, 
after getting exposure to so many people who go through the interview process and really don't do a good job, it gave me a lot of information um, to then springboard and create my own company to help people make career transitions better because really it's not about a resume. A lot of people think, oh, this career transition, I just got laid off, whatever. I got to go brush up my resume. And I don't believe in that at all. Um, And so I created a nine-step model that's a process that people can go through so that they gain the confidence along the way and then they have the storytelling to stand on. Mm. And I think that's so important. You and I agree on that when it comes to resume writing. I think that part of the challenge is we want something that's immediately actionable. And the resume also feels like a security blanket in many ways. We're afraid someone's going to ask us for it and we're not going to have it ready. But a lot of times we definitely overemphasize the importance of it and we don't we don't put it in its proper place in the process. And especially if you're not sure what you want to do, right? Let's say you've been coming out of a role that has been, meh, I kind of want to do something different. The resume that you would write for that is not going to get you to the new place that you want to go, right? So there's there's strategy there that I think, unfortunately, in our quest for speed and immediate gratification, we might miss. (laughs) That's absolutely true. And really that if even... All of the resume writers that I'm I'm affiliated with and and you know talk with a lot on LinkedIn um, and behind the scenes, um, all of them will say you have to know what your target is. And if you don't know what your target is, you need to do some research to kind of hone and fine tune that. Otherwise, you're going to be doing a, a a document that's a repository of your experiences versus articulating your unique value proposition for you know those decision makers that may hire you. And if you're not clear, and then it's not clear on the document, you're not going to get picked up through an ATS. That's right. Exactly. And so let's imagine, and I know everybody's special, but let's imagine the average person comes to you and says, I need help. What are they asking for help with? What is it that they generally struggle with? Um, Oftentimes at the beginning, when I first launched my coaching program, it was, I need, I need a resume. Do you do that? And, um, but today, because, um, I've, I've got information that I give people in advance before I chat with them, when I do meet with people, they understand that there's much, there's more of a process to it. And so to answer your question, they usually say something like, I'm having a really hard time telling my story. I'm a real, I'm having a difficult time explaining my unique value proposition. I've been interviewed multiple times and I end up being number two back. Those are the kinds of, those are the problems that I love solving. And I hear that quite a bit too. And I think this is an interesting place to dig into because I'm sure there are aspects of what you do that are more mechanical in the sense of how do I tell the story most effectively, but also a big mindset piece to this as well. And you and I chatted offline a bit about the reluctance to use the term mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, an over-dependence on the term on the uh, word we, maybe feeling like I'm overselling myself, worried that I'm not as good as other people might think I am. So can we spend a little bit of time talking about that piece? Absolutely. I- I've been fortunate to work with an awful lot of humble leaders who, you know, and maybe that is one of the parts of their profile that come to me is they're humble and they're having a hard time getting that story out there. So it's both men and women. I particularly find this with women where they 
they often will refer to their successes within the we context. And so I spend time with them finding a balance between, you know, explaining, here's what I did as a leader. I set the strategy. I built my team. You know, I, you know, I let I, you know, had the cross-functional partners pulled together to make these certain things happen. And then my team and I executed on X, Y, and Z. And these are the successes that we we achieved for our company. So you can elegantly balance the two, but if you don't take confident ownership for what you actually led, how will you give the decision maker that confidence? Absolutely. And I think this is a big struggle for a lot of people, women in particular. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of, and maybe I'm being overly uh, idealistic here, but is there any kind of a rule of thumb or some kind of shortcut that people can use to, because I think they're so afraid of getting that proportion wrong. And when you and I were talking before, you can go too far in either direction, especially yeah. because women often get a lot of backlash when we advocate for ourselves. So well, what is that? How do we know that we're getting the balance, at least in the ballpark? If you, if you say <laughs> I for everything, I did this and then I did that. And that's all the person is hearing on the other end that could really tank out any interview, in my opinion. Um, I think there's formulas though. So, you know, for storytelling in interviews, I use the SOAR method. Other people use STAR, PAR, and CAR. I use SOAR, it stands for what is the situation? What were the obstacles? What were the actions? And then what were the results? And so when I'm using that formula to help prepare people to tell their stories, first you're explaining the context. So you give just a brief context so that now that listener has a place to hang their hat. I get why you're telling me the story. What were the obstacles is telling them why this story is going to be maybe relevant, you know, to what they're doing at this company. The actions, this is where you this is to answer your question, the actions that you took and that we took. I did this. Boom, boom, boom. I led these things and set all this stuff up. And then my team, what are the results? We accomplished what? Mm -hmm. Now, if you did a single standalone accomplishment, take it, take, you know, you should take that as a feather in your, in your, what is it? The cap, yeah. <laughs> whatever, feather in your cap. Um, you know, so if you plan prepared researched and wrote an article and then gave a keynote speech, that's all you. Hmm. But, you know, but if you're, you know, you're running, um, you know, a sales team and you're collectively your sales team knocked it out of the park and, you know, sold, you know, 12% more than last year, then it's we. But what did you do as a leader to set everybody up for success? Hmm. Yeah. And so what else do you think that people struggle with when it comes to this whole idea of storytelling. And like you said, I hear this a lot too, of I keep coming in second. I don't know how to actually get across the finish line. Oh gosh. There's so many things people do to kind of blow it. And sometimes it, it isn't them. Maybe it's really the company had this feeling through the process. The other person was the better fit in whatever way, shape or form with all the variables, or it could, could have been as simple as they knew that person better. That could have been the internal candidate that had the leg up. I've been a part of those processes. 
Um, I've also been, um, I've been a part of a lot of different, you know, search processes where you don't know what's going to happen at the finish line. What you can do is try to set yourself up, you know, for success. The deal killer is when the interviewee isn't succinct with their, their interview answers. So rambling, rambling is the deal killer. It's unlikely you made it to the number two spot and have been a rambler, especially at the executive level. (laughs) Um, That's a deal killer. And so you want to go back to those source stories to sharpen what you're, what's going to be in your, in your bat, in your toolkit bag, so that when they're asking questions about your skills, you're pulling out the exact right type of story. And then check your check your own assumptions that you're using the right story. Okay, so with that story, was that the kind of thing that you were looking for? Is there something else I can kind of draw a, a correlation between the skills that you're looking for, you know, and the things that I've done? So you can understand I can do that job. I think that's such a good point too. And rambling in my mind, can be attributed to a number of things. One is lack of practice. If you're trying to do this on the fly, you're going to have a harder time doing it. But also, I think it's nerves. And these kinds of situations can definitely be very intimidating. And so I'm curious what you recommend in terms of solutions to this problem. (laughs) I like for my clients to be the most prepared person in the room. And, And not and that can't happen in all cases. But you have to kind of be prepared that the people that are interviewing you throughout the process aren't going to be super skilled at interviewing. Mm. At any stage of the process, you may have an early career recruiter who's getting their sea legs. You may have an experienced HR person or recruiter who, who does know what they're doing. You know, So you have to be able to modify how you're engaging with these people. But I think the way that you overcome some of these challenges is to be prepared. You've done your homework on the company and you feel some level of confidence about the challenges the company is facing and your role in helping them achieve their goals and success. Um, Also checking your assumptions and listening, asking good questions, getting the information you need as you have that dialogue, because interviews are conversations. It's not a drill session, right? So I'm not sure if that totally answered your question, but I think being prepared is the best way to tamp down the nerves. I think you're right. And I like what you said about conversations, because I think about this a lot too. If you go into an interview with the assumption or almost acting as if it's an interrogation, you're not going to show your personality. You're not (laughs) going to be engaging or memorable. (laughs) That's not a relationship building strategy. And although sometimes we feel like that's why we're there is to have somebody just barrage us with questions Mm -hmm. in reality. And I think this is where confidence comes into it too. Everybody's circumstances are different. I may be looking for a job because I desperately need a paycheck versus somebody who's maybe thinking, I just want greater fulfillment in my career. I have a little bit longer that I can take. But at the end of the day, interviews are, as cliche as it sounds, just as much for you as they are for the organization. And if you're there primarily Mm -hmm. to make a good impression, you're not getting the information you need to assess whether this is going to be the right opportunity for you. And I think the conversation. Yeah. And when you feel like you have some leverage or power, right, because I'm here to evaluate you at the same time that you're evaluating me, I think you come across more confidently. There is this sense of, I could 
I could walk away from this position because it may not be right for me. I'm not just trying to get them to want me. Absolutely. And you you can use some terminology that is showing that you're finding the middle ground. You know, I'm hoping we can find a match. I've got questions to uncover more about how you operate, what your culture is like, what, you know, what my team will be like that I will lead, you know, what are the internal politics that are happening right now? All those smart questions you should be ready with, not the pat stuff that comes right off of a website. Like, tell me about your values. All that should be, you already should have that on lockdown. You know, you should know all of that. (laughs) Now you're peeling back the layers of the onion and you're looking at what they're saying about the company in the news. What kind of presses are they putting out on their own? What are the key players promoting and saying on LinkedIn, et cetera. What research can you fuel your um, your conversation so you have the confidence you're even asking the right questions to see if it's a fit for you? Yeah. And sometimes people ask me, and I'd love your perspective on this too. Sometimes people will ask me, is it okay if I ask them about how much they value diversity or some, you know, something that's attached to a core value that they have? And my immediate response is, if it's not, do you want to work there? Right? If you can't ask a question about something that you <laughs> value, but I wonder, are there are there sort of third rails when it comes to interviews? Is there anything that you would recommend aside from the obvious, like don't ask about something you could easily get the answer to online? Is there anything that you think is just not an appropriate question within an interview? Gosh, um, I don't have anything that's glaringly come to mind. Um, you know. For most of us, we want to understand if someone's in the right salary range, but we're not talking numbers early on. Um, That's, you know, all of that is changing as we see more pay transparency. Um, I think that each person that comes to an interview just has to have a pretty good EQ and being able to read the room, right? Especially at the leadership level. Let me give you an example of like, what I mean by maybe not having excellent EQ or emotional quotient um, is uh, I interviewed an executive for a CEO role who um, I had an hour with them and I had about eight solid questions prepared that related to the skills I needed to uncover to see if they were going to be in a top batch that I would be maybe presenting to the client. Um I clearly told the candidate, I need you to do a quick tell me about yourself, five minutes or less, because I have eight questions and I really want to learn more about your skills. That's why we're here together. When I did the ask them to tell me about yourself, even teeing that up 20 minutes later, they weren't done with the tell me about yourself. This individual, needless to say, did not move forward in the process because they couldn't, I mean, this was going to be a CEO of a very large organization. um, And that was not going to work. That's reading the room. That's, that's one of the, the main principles within executive presence. Absolutely. That's a great example. And I think sometimes, and I don't know anything about that particular individual, it can come across as either a little self-indulgent, but also just you're not organized in your thinking, right? If you can't concisely introduce yourself, you're not ready (laughs) for this conversation. Right. Which is what I, which, you know, to help build people's confidence, that's what I'm doing even on the front end of my process is just 
uncovering what their strengths are, uncovering their leadership approach, and then understanding their entire career story so that we, I have a kind of my own little framework where we converge all of that into um, a way that they can tell that story quickly. And most of the people I'm working with have more than 25 years of experience. So it's a lot to capture. And what I find is most of them get so comfortable with telling that quick story. I'm doing this because I do it. It's an arc. Um, <laughs> but they usually can just move to that last bit and say, look, I've done A, B, and C throughout my career. And recently I've done X, Y, and Z, and I'm uniquely qualified to do blah, blah, blah for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it gives them that confidence to like, tell it quickly in a nutshell, and then gently take control of the interview and say, the reason why I'm here today is because I can really see the thread between this and that. And I can't wait to find out more from you and to answer your questions and see if we have a skill match. Yeah, I think that's such a great way to transition into the next part of the conversation, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm curious to what your thoughts are on follow-up. So I leave the interview. I'm feeling good about it. I send my thank you note. Do you still like, what's the thank you note protocol? And what happens when you're in a holding pattern and you have no idea what's going on? What do I do now? And I'm doubting myself and thinking nobody wants me and I don't know right. what's going on. <laughs> um, it's exceptionally difficult at all levels. I'm just, I'll just say that. Um, and a candidate can only do what they can control, right? So what can a candidate control? They can send individual email thank you notes to anyone that was a part of the process, expressing their genuine interest in, in moving forward in the process, maybe one nugget about what they really was particularly insightful. And then one little trick that I have is, um, you know, I'm, I'll be looking forward to following up with you. I'll circle back, you know, dot, dot, dot in a week. I'm making this up because it depends on what you already learned about the process. That's on you. You got to be asking, well, what is your process like? Well, for a CEO search, it's going to be many, many weeks of vetting people before you even cull it down. Like, you know, it's going to take a while. And so, a lot of times recruiters and hiring managers are not excellent at explaining the process and they may not know it entirely because it can get shifted on them. Maybe the hiring manager has a death in the family and then it takes them offline. That's literally happened to me in processes. So it you need to take some ownership and control of the thank yous and some of that content contact, but you don't want to send an email every day, you know, stagger it by a week or so. Um, what I will say is I've even had executive level people interview with the top leader at an organization, send a thank you note one week out, send a thank you note a second week out and not hear back until the third week from the HR person that they weren't moving forward. And that's from the CEO who would not acknowledge the thank you note. Mm. So it's not always you. It's not always your fault. You need to realize that you can't control everything and forgive yourself for it. I think that's such an important point too. And a lot of times we don't know what's happening there to your point, maybe that that message was delivered in good faith that we have this timeline and something in the organization or something in someone's personal life derails the process. And that's not going to be made transparent to the individuals who are waiting. And so not getting too stressed out over personalizing. I know it's easy for us to say, but I'm a big believer that if it's not the right fit, for them, it's not the right fit 
for you for whatever the reason is. It can be disappointing. It does not mean that you're not a talented, valuable person with, you know, who has something to offer to another organization. And I guess this brings me to the question that always comes up, which is, is it appropriate to ask for feedback? And why might somebody not give feedback? What are some of the sort of the, um, the reasons around not sharing feedback? Yeah. Um, for those of us who are experienced recruiters, um, most of the time we're not going to give real feedback. Um, that especially would be personal related to like the leadership skills or communication skills Um, because it it hurts, it's hard to give, and it's often not well received. We also may not give feedback um, about a lack of experience because once we do that, then, and we've already gotten an offer out, we're now rejecting you. We're, we're being kind and we're telling you, but we're not going to tell you why we've picked someone else mm. happens some of the time, a small percentage, but it happens. And it's awful is the arguments start coming. Uh, you know, you didn't ask me those questions or, um, I do have that experience, but it didn't show up in the interview process. Um, it is traumatic and painful to give real advice. Now, are there recruiters that do give like real feedback? Absolutely. It's not, you know, nothing's hundred percent with what I'm saying, mm-hmm. um, but we've learned not to do it because there are these people who've made it so, so difficult. So what is a candidate to do? Um, you could try to um, get feedback related to skill gaps, perceived skill gaps that you may have had along the way based on the hiring team's decision that you could then be investigating on how to better communicate in the future. So maybe you have the skill and you better own it. Okay, I think I have that skill, but the perceived, the perception of the gap is is important now. If you really want the feedback, you better be open to it. And it's about the other people's perception that you didn't communicate something effectively. It's possible. Or the other person was just way more qualified than you and they got picked. Mm. Yeah. No, that's a really helpful insight too, because I do think that people feel, you know, it's that same if someone breaks up with you, right, and you don't know why, that that sense of that lack of closure is so hard to process because we it want is so hard. <laughs> but here's here's what I would say is if we back this up one more step, and you're in the interview process, and you and at the end of the interview they'll say, you know, do you have any questions for me? And maybe you do have some genuine questions about the company, the position, etc. One of the questions I like for my clients to have in their back pocket is. Um, is there anything in this hour we didn't get to discuss where you may have a perceived gap in the skills that I have to be able to do this job effectively that we didn't get a chance to cover? That gives the interviewer a, an opportunity to go, you know, there was this one last question I didn't get to. And I'd love to know if you fill in the blank. I don't know that you've managed global teams. Oh, yes, I have actually across, you know, two regions, my team size was X, Y, and Z, right? So what if you walk away from that interview, you never find out that they didn't know that you led a global team, that'd be awful. And 
now, now you've helped get them the information they need to make a better choice. I'm so glad you said that because I think that's such an important strategy because either you do have the experience and you can sort of correct the record, so to speak, right? Give them that additional insight that they're looking for, or they share with you that there truly is a gap. And now at least when you leave, because you can't change it. If you don't have it, you don't have it, right? And if that's a deal breaker for them, you can't do anything about that. But at least you know going out there. Now I can take that with me and assess, is this something that's going to be critical for me going forward? How would I fill that gap? It just gives us that greater sense of empowerment. We can do something with it. Absolutely. Which all this plays back so well to like just the whole purpose for your podcast is like, how do you avoid going down that sinkhole of imposter syndrome? Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that we talked about, you know, researching, understanding, you know, what it is you're going to talk about, preparing your stories, um, you know, paying attention to your executive presence. There's like 16 or 17 different aspects of executive presence. That's like a whole nother topic. <laughs> but one of those was reading the room, um, you know, and showing up confidently about what you have done and give credit to your team, but also have confidence in the things that you've performed and the results you've gotten. I want to, you just reminded me of something that I want to back way up and ask for your thoughts on is before you even get into the interview, uh-huh. we all know that applicant tracking systems have issues, right? And so a lot of times people feel like they apply or they don't, they don't hear anything. They don't know if that ever got through. Would you advise someone, especially because that information is so much more readily available nowadays with LinkedIn that if I know who the hiring manager is, if I can identify an actual human on the other end of this process, would you advise people to jump the line, so to speak, or to reach out personally? Does, is that going to alienate the person at the other end? Is that seen as, you know, you're that much more committed? Like, what do you what do you think the interpretation of that behavior is? Um, okay, so when you apply to a job and you spend two hours, you know, some of these take forever, you're cutting and pasting all this information in, right? You're spending your valuable time. And then what happens? You get a dopamine hit that you did something. Mm-hmm. Check the box, right? You don't know how many people are applying for that said job. I'll give you an example. I was doing a COO search where our funnel initially was quite wide. It was for healthcare, but The tolerance by the CEO to have somebody not in healthcare was rather wide at the beginning. So we didn't include that as a requirement. I had 800 resumes to review. I physically, with my own eyeballs, skimmed 800 resumes, which I then had to get trifocals. (laughs) This is a true story. So imagine you are one of those people applying and there's 800 people in my database And a real human is reading them, by the way, not reading every word. I'm skimming to get to the top, you know, to call it down to my A category to initially make phone calls, right? Well, you, in order to get seen and heard, you know, you want to get on with a Google, you want to get on with an Intel, you want to get on at that smaller 50 person company. Yes, go do research, do do, use the search engines to find and make guesses about the hiring manager and or the talent acquisition recruiter staffing team so that you can send them a personalized message and say, hey, I applied for this job. Would love five minutes of your time to ask a couple of questions or, you know, do you know who the hiring manager is? Things like that. Try to get informational conversations without saying that you've applied for a job. That's another way. Um, If you simply spend your time applying to jobs and not following up 
in my opinion, immediately, it's called the spray and pray method. You spray your resume out, you pray someone is going to call you. And according to one of my favorite authors, Steve Dalton of the two hour job search, it's like one to 2% of the time you're going to even get picked up through that kind of a process. You're going to increase your odds I have to go back and read the book. It's like 11 to 20%. If you start reaching out and trying to find advocates and boosters to boost you into the system, to boost you into getting in front of the hiring team. Now, if you're not qualified, if you don't meet the qualifications, then you may be spending the wrong, you know, your energy in the wrong way. But that also might mean that you're a career switcher and you're, you don't have obvious qualifications that is going to take way more work. Don't bother to just apply. That is just, I believe, a waste of your time. No one's going to be able to figure it out from your resume why you applied for the job. Another great point. Yeah, I think that it really only fits when you've got a background that directly aligns with what is asked in the job description, right? Right. Because the job of that hiring manager and the recruiters is to find someone that could come in and do the job right now. Unless it's a first line employee that maybe maybe it's a new college, recent college grad and the whole their whole career is ahead of them and they're going to mold and shape them and they have a plan for new people entering the company. We're not talking about that really. Um because there's programs developed by a lot of companies to bring in fresh talent. Um I'm talking at the, you know, people who are at least mid-career. No, that makes perfect sense. And I could be here all day with you. I think this is such great information. <laughs> well, I have a two-part question for you as we're wrapping up. Number one is, is there anything important? I know there's a lot that we could get to, but anything that you feel we missed and that's really important to say in our closing moments together and where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and what you do? Oh gosh, um, I, we covered so much. <laughs> <laughs> it was we, a pretty fast and furious 35 minutes, right? <laughs> it sure was. Um, I, I guess the thing I would leave people with is, you know, get centered on your story, get centered on your unique value proposition, and be prepared to, to explain that in ways that quickly gets people's attention and that you're not rambling because you can see the light go off in people's eyes once you start talking if you haven't kind of gotten that dialed in, right? Um, where can people find me? Uh, you can find me at GinaReillyConsulting.com. Um, I actually have uh, at the very top a little green button that you can click on and you can download uh, a, a free webinar and that comes with a workbook and you can start creating a career transition plan for yourself with like my outline. So you can follow the video content and then start planning for like, okay, what are my unique strengths? What are my values? What are what you know? What are those key results that I've had that I'm really proud of? So you can start putting that together and start seeing if you have any gaps on, you know, how you're going about your job search. What a fantastic resource! And we'll link to that in the the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Gina. This is so helpful. You're so welcome. It was fun. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Imposter Syndrome Files. If you would like to continue this conversation in a safe and trusted space. I would love for you to join my virtual discussion group every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern. For the past several years, the group has been limited to women, but it is now open 
regardless of gender, to anyone who is interested in exploring and troubleshooting common workplace challenges, building better awareness of ourselves and others, and becoming more inclusive allies at work. Check out the show notes for more info on how to find us. And please join us next week for another episode of The Imposter Syndrome Files.